0: This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Punk We here at the Word of the Week are pretty set in our ways these days. Okay, we're grumpy old men. We like good old classic fantasy games, and we think Dungeons & Dragons was better way back when. We yell at clouds, and we tell kids to get off our lawn! And of course, we remember when 50 cents would buy you a trip to the movies, a bucket of popcorn, a soda, and a new Ford, provided we were willing to walk 15 miles to the movie theater against the wind, in the snow, barefoot, uphill, both ways, and we were happier because we had discipline back then. But we didn't have 50 cents because you had to work a week at the factory to make a nickel, so we were poor as dirt, but it didn't matter because we were happy that way, and besides, a nickel would buy you a loaf of bread and a roast beef because money just went further those days, and... Oh, okay, alright, we're not that old. And honestly, we weren't that disciplined. And to be honest, we enjoy lots of nerdy media, not just fantasy. We like science fiction, we like supers. We like it all, really. And once upon a time, we even enjoyed cyberpunk. And cyberpunk fantasy. Games like Shadowrun. But where our old manners tends to show is our disdain for kids these days putting punk at the end of every darned thing. Cyberpunk was okay, all right? But these days you've got your steampunk, your spellpunk, your dieselpunk, probably even punk punk. Punk has become one of those suffixes that just gets crammed onto the end of everything, kind of like attaching gate to the end of every scandal. It's a suffix that has outlived the thing it references, and a suffix that has had all of its meaning diluted. It's become just a standard genre convention, which is kind of ironic, because the word itself should never be a part of anything conventional. And honestly, our disdain for the various punk genres? That's actually more appropriate to the meaning of the word. So how did punk become a sort of genre modifier suffix? Which punk genres came first? Where did they come from? And who can we blame for this linguistic crime? Who can we, as grumpy old men with no patience for all these punk genres, yell at? Well, ultimately, we're going to yell at Bruce Bethke and John Clute, And we're going to yell a lot at William Gibson, Surprisingly, we're not going to yell about Queen Victoria so much, but we will yell about Thomas Edison. And not because of that elephant electrocution thing that he's been blamed for, but never actually did. Like, not at all. And since we're going to talk a little bit about Edison, we'll take a quick moment to clear up that little lie. The story goes that in America, in the late 1800s, there were two electrical standards under consideration, alternating current, or AC, and direct current, or DC. Both had virtues, both had flaws, but DC was the current standard that American inventor, industrialist, and businessman Thomas Edison supported, mainly because it was the sort of current his companies provided. Now, AC was winning the debate, mainly because it was more efficient to transport via wires over long distances. So in a fit of cartoonish villainy, Thomas Edison supposedly held a great public event in which he electrocuted an elephant to death with alternating current in a brutal fashion, attempting to prove that AC current was unsafe, basically to scare Americans into supporting direct current and thus his business enterprises. Except that's not at all what happened. In 1903, a circus elephant named Topsy was put to death using alternating electric current. And it was a big news story. And it was even filmed. And the people who provided the electrical current did come from a company bearing Edison's name. But the truth is that Edison had very little to do with it. Nothing to gain. See, by 1903, the War of the Currents was over. America was on the alternating current standard and had been for 10 years. Companies like Consolidated Edison were already providing alternating current power. It was a done deal. Edison had even issued a public statement admitting he should have backed AC from the beginning. He was a good loser. And Edison was not really directly involved in the management of his companies anymore at this point. He wasn't at the electrocution. At best, he might have provided some technical consultation. The truth is, Topsy the Elephant had been sentenced to death because she was, what was called at the time, a rogue circus elephant. She was captured in Asia in 1875 and shipped to the U.S., where she became a performance animal for the Four-Paw Circus. At the time, the 4 Pass Circus and the Barnum and Bailey Circus were in direct competition. Each was trying to gather the most impressive collection of elephants. Unfortunately, Topsy was badly abused by her owners. We'll skip over the unpleasant details. The result of all this was that Topsy became ill-tempered and aggressive as a result of the abusive treatment. She changed owners several times and went from being a performing animal to a work animal... But each owner seemed more abusive than the last, by most accounts, and there were several scares and more than a few accidents. For a while, her status as a man-killing elephant heightened her popularity, but she quickly became a liability. In the end, the owners of Coney Island's Luna Park, who had ended up with Topsy, decided she was too much of a liability. And they negotiated with the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals to have her executed. But, in one last bit of commercial exploitation, they decided to make it a public spectacle. And they commissioned technicians from one of Edison's companies, a forerunner to the Consolidated Edison Company, to actually handle the execution. Topsy was drugged and then electrocuted but the electrocution was swift and Topsy died almost immediately when the current was turned on. It was not a brutal spectacle. Now it's interesting that this takes us to both Thomas Edison and circuses and to the late 1800s, because the story of the punk genres, and specifically of both cyberpunk and steampunk, have their origins there. Not only that, but this is also around the time that the word punk entered popular American vernacular. It was even used by circuses at the time. They had punk days, which were days when kids were admitted free, because the word punk, by that time, had come to mean an inexperienced young person. But the word had evolved greatly from its original meaning by that point, and it would continue to evolve. The word punk dates back to at least the mid-1600s, and it was used to refer to a piece of rotten wood that could be used as tinder. And you've probably heard the word punk used for a long match or stick that's used to light something on fire, like fireworks, right? That's why. The word also came to be associated with something nearly worthless, like rotten wood with an incidental use as tinder, which is also how it became associated with prostitutes at around the same time. It was hobo slang, interestingly, where it picked up a meaning as a young, inexperienced boy, and also where it picked up an association with homosexuality. Train-riding hobos would often take on young boys as apprentices and companions, and they called them punks, at first because they were worthless, but with an incidental use. And the word evolved. It was that same sense of the word, one that combined worthlessness and inferiority with a sense of inexperience and apprenticeship, that helped the word gain its other meaning in the 1920s. At that point, it was being used in the criminal underworld as slang for an apprentice criminal, and it entered law enforcement slang with the same meaning. A punk was a young, inexperienced criminal, a hoodlum. To trace the word's evolution further, we have to jump ahead some 40 years. As we've talked about before in previous episodes, in the 1950s, a new style of music had emerged in the United States that combined a number of older influences. Those included blues, jazz, swing, gospel, folk, and country and western. It was called rock and roll, and it was hugely popular, and it became very mainstream, and it became big business. But as with any culture, there appeared a counterculture. In the 1960s, you had groups of young musicians with no training, no instruction, no money, and sometimes very little talent. And they would form bands and practice in their basements and garages. And because of the social and political unrest of the era, their music was often raw, crude, and filled with political messages. From that scene came bands like the Stooges and the Velvet Underground, they pushed the bounds of what was considered rock music and even what was considered music. And they did it with a flashy, flamboyant style. And it was at this point that a diaspora of sorts occurred in the American music scene. David Bowie and bands like the New York Dolls started the glam rock movement. Hard rock and metal had their foundations built. And by the mid-1970s, in New York's Bowery District, There appeared bands like the Ramones, and Blondie, and the Talking Heads, who played at clubs like the legendary CBGB, whose particular musical style appealed to young, angry, rebellious, unemployed, politically active men. And when the owner of a shop that sold particularly risque clothing in London, a shop called SEX, traveled to the United States, got involved in the glam rock movement, sponsored the New York Dolls for a time, and then returned to London. He helped popularize the new music style from the Bowery amongst the disaffected youth of London. His name was Malcolm McLaren. And it was this particular music style, with its origins in the garages and clubs of the Bowery and its concurrent evolution in New York and London, combined with a particular style of clothing from a risque shop in London called Sex, that was coined as the punk movement by a music reviewer in a magazine called Cream in the 1970s. He was using the word in its young criminal sense, and thus it became associated with a particular brand of angry, anti-authoritarian, non-conventional counterculture. But what does this have to do with cybers or steams? Well, the thing is that cyberpunk was never meant to be a genre descriptor. It actually described a particular character that was emerging in science fiction in the early 1980s. See, a new take on science fiction had appeared at the time. Whereas sci-fi had primarily been associated with imaginative ideas about the future and space travel and far-flung flights of scientifically grounded fantasy, this new form of sci-fi was more grounded in the present. It took the world as it was, well, as it was in the late 1970s and early 80s, and added advanced technology. But all of the various social and political issues of the day were emphasized. Inequality, poverty, environmental concerns, runaway corporate crony, capitalism, the Cold War, nuclear tensions, and so on. It was a hard edged look at current issues, cynical and angry. And it often featured cynical, angry, anti-authoritarian, but technologically savvy main characters. And it was those characters that Brian Bethke was trying to describe in his short story published in Amazing Magazine in 1983. A story called Cyberpunk. And he himself explained that the name was meant to represent the high technology present in the story with the cynical, anti-authoritarian, criminal attitudes of the main characters. As noted, though, Bethke didn't invent the archetype that he was writing about. By that point, there were a number of writers who were using similar themes in their stories. Among the most well-known were Bruce Sterling, Rudy Rucker, John Shirley, and Lewis Shiner. But each of those authors, who might be called the progenitors of the genre, Said they were inspired by precisely one man and precisely one book. That would be Neuromancer by William Gibson. It's no stretch to say Gibson invented cyberpunk. William Ford Gibson was born in 1948 in South Carolina. After his father passed away, he moved with his mother to Virginia and lived in isolated childhood. He spent much of his time reading science fiction anthologies from authors of the day and became enamored of the genre. Unfortunately, he performed badly in school. His mother, frustrated by his poor academic performance, sent him away to the Southern Arizona School for Boys. But he didn't do well there either, and he dropped out before graduating following the death of his mother. Jobless and with no prospects, he moved to Canada where he got involved with the burgeoning hippie culture and met Deborah Jean Thompson. The two got married in 1972. Eventually, Gibson got his act together. He qualified for financial aid and earned a bachelor's degree in English and began publishing short stories. He then continued his education and got a master's degree with a focus on science fiction. At a science fiction convention in 1980, he met punk musician and fellow author John Shirley, Yes, one of the aforementioned cyberpunk writers who would help popularize the genre that Gibson would soon invent. After publishing several short stories, Gibson sold his first novel, Neuromancer. Neuromancer was, essentially, the sum total of everything that made Gibson who he was. It was set in a high-tech dystopian near future. It tells the story of an unemployed hacker living in the criminal underworld of Chiba City, Japan. The world is divided into the wealthy haves and the impoverished, struggling have nots, and various environmental, capitalistic, and technological themes are explored. Most notably, Gibson coined the term cyberspace to describe a vast network of interconnected computers across the globe, which took the form of a virtual reality other space. Case, the main character, had once used cybernetic implants to project his consciousness directly into cyberspace to pull off amazing data crimes. But after he betrayed the criminals he was working for, he was poisoned, and the brain damage left him unable to access the virtual world. Ultimately, he teams up with a cybernetically enhanced bodyguard named Molly to take on wealthy elites, corporate powerhouses, and rogue artificial intelligence supercomputers. Yeah, Gibson pretty much invented the cyberpunk genre. We weren't kidding. But it was when other authors, like Sterling and Shiner and others, started offering their own takes on it that it became a full-blown genre. But what's really funny is that cyberpunk isn't the only punk genre that Gibson was involved in. And cyberpunk isn't the only genre that got its name when some writer decided to make a portmanteau out of a technological element and a rebellious anti-capitalist attitude. So now, let's talk about steampunk. Although we consider steampunk to be a sort of punk genre come lately, and an imitation of cyberpunk, the truth is that steampunk, as a named genre, has also been around for a while. The name was coined in 1987 by writer K.W. Jeter to describe a burgeoning genre of science fiction that was at once both a cousin and a foil to cyberpunk. Like cyberpunk, steampunk also dealt with social and political issues. But where cyberpunk involves exploring those issues in a dystopian near future with advanced technology, steampunk explores the same issues in a dystopian near past with advanced technology. Essentially takes high technology and transplants it into the Victorian era of England. The Victorian era is named for Queen Alexandrina Victoria, who ruled the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland from 1837 until her death in 1901 which made her the longest reigning British monarch in history. She was born to Prince Edward Augustus, who was then the fourth son of King George III. Unfortunately, the various sons of George III hadn't had much luck producing heirs for their lineage. They married late and had bad luck conceiving children. In some cases, the children didn't survive. After George III passed away, Victoria's uncle George IV took the throne, but he died childless. And his brother William IV also had no living heirs. When William IV passed away, Queen Victoria ascended to the throne despite some political maneuvering by Parliament to limit her powers. The era of Victoria's reign is recognized generally as a prosperous and peaceful time for the British Empire, and it is also seen as a period of social reform and great progress. Consequently, Victoria is remembered as a beloved, just, and popular leader. And it is true that the British colonial empire expanded greatly under her rule and brought a great deal of profit home. It's also true that the Industrial Revolution picked up steam and led to many great advances. But as always, that's not the whole story. For example, despite that the period is often characterized by the phrase Pax Britannica, the British peace. The truth is, the empire was at war with someone overseas for pretty much the entirety of Victoria's reign. And despite great increases in justice and worker protections domestically and great social progress, colonial subjects in Britain's overseas holdings were not so well treated. Then too was a rampant increase in poverty and overcrowding as a result of a population explosion and a great increase in urbanization as the economy shifted from agrarian to technological. Wages were kept low due to rampant unemployment. Many areas of the large cities like London were covered with dirty slums. Crime and prostitution ran rampant. And despite attempts to rein it in with various laws, children were employed for long hours in dangerous conditions in order to earn enough money for their families to get by. So, it was an era of prosperity and plenty for the haves, but not for the have-nots much like the dystopian future of the cyberpunk world. And in fact, the parallels between the modern era of the 1980s in which these stories were becoming popular and the social and political climate of the Victorian era is precisely why many authors set their stories there. Because in truth... Steampunk has much less to do with Victorian England and much more to do with mad inventors having crazy adventures in the American frontier West at the turn of the 20th century, which were inspired by Thomas Edison. Yeah, you heard us. Let us tell you about the Edisonade. But first, let us assure you that we're not discounting the influence of Victorian-era writers like Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. Yes, they wrote about steam-powered high technology in Victorian England. They influenced the steampunk genre. But another genre of science fiction that is now largely forgotten has even more to do with modern steampunk. See, in the late 19th and early 20th century, in America... Dime novels were incredibly popular. These were short books cheaply printed and sold for a dime apiece. For some context, that'd be like three American bucks today, taking into account inflation. And among the most popular were a peculiar set of stories that combined high technology, inventiveness, and resourcefulness with exploration of the American frontier. In most of the stories, an adventurous young man with an inventive spirit has ludicrous adventures in the frontier, helped along by strange gadgets of his own invention. Especially steam-powered mechanoids in the 1868 story The Steam Man of the Prairies by Edward S. Ellis. And many of these books idolized Thomas Edison himself. There were numerous stories featuring the adventures of Thomas Edison Jr. by many authors, including Philip Reed. And Thomas Edison himself featured in a story by Garrett P. Service called Edison's Conquest of Mars. And not to be outdone, we have to mention for those Tesla fans out there, Tesla was also sent to Mars in the story To Mars with Tesla, or The Mystery of the Hidden World. These stories eventually got nicknamed Edison Aids. And many of the technological themes that eventually appeared in steampunk fiction first appeared in those stories and were combined with social and political themes of the 1980s as reflected in the socially and culturally similar Victorian era. So that's the real story of steampunk. And that also just goes to show how much further money used to go. For just the equivalent of three bucks, you could get a book about Thomas Edison and Tesla using robots to conquer Mars. Nowadays, three bucks won't even get you a cup of coffee, because things were just better back then. Now get off our lawns, you dirty punks. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash GM Word of the Week. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com of the and TheAngryGM.com.